This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to Outdoors with me, Lawrence Gunther. Hey, welcome back, folks. This is episode number two of this new podcast. Today, we've got Miss Lily going to be teaching us about the most endangered animal in Canada. Why should we care? What is it? Well, we'll hear all about that on uh, Getting School with Miss Lily. We're going to go on a bucket list adventure. We're going to hear about some of those ancient forests in the southern part of Vancouver Island. Ancient trees, folks, I've visited these trees. They're huge. We're going to hear from Dave Brown, a special guest. We're going to talk about food forests and making your lawns into a habitat for bees and butterflies and other wildlife. I'm going to talk to you about sticks and canes, why I use the different ones I have, and what good are they, and what good aren't they. And then we're going to have some campfire reflections. Oh, we got a full show, folks. I'll meet you back at the campground. Getting schooled with Miss Lily. Lily, what'd you find out for me this week? So, you're talking about the Vancouver Island marmot. A marmot. What a is marmot. a marmot? It is a, it's part of the squirrel family, and they look like beavers, but they have squirrel tails. How big do these things get? Uh, they can get up to like 54 centimeters, and they can weigh like 3 kilograms. Huh. And so they're much bigger than a squirrel, but yeah, not yeah. as big as a beaver. Yeah, but they're in the squirrel family. And do they live across Canada, or...? Uh, They live in Vancouver and British Columbia. British Columbia. So why are you bringing up marmots? They're Canada's most endangered species. Canada's most endangered species. How come no one knows about marmots? I don't know. I don't think they're very talked about. (laughs) No, they're really not. (laughs) In 2003, there's only 27 left. Oh my, 27 of them? 27 marmots. That's not a lot. No, but now because of uh, rehabilitation, there's over 200. So these are all in captivity? Yeah, that's how they're, that's how they're being bred. That's oh. how they're re- rehabilitating them. In captivity. And so they're probably just going to release them at some point when they have enough of them, I guess. Yeah, so what they do, they, they run taxidermied predators like coyotes or foxes, like on wheels around their cages and their enclosures to s- make them afraid of predators so they can release them in the wild. Well, that's habituating them, yeah, right, for, yeah, yeah. for wildlife so they can live. Well, that makes sense. Getting because, them ready for the real world. Oh, yeah, because these, these guys are prey. They're not predators, are they? No, yeah, no, they're... They're yeah. snacks. Yeah, they're snacks. Oh, my goodness. So, Lily, why do we care about marmots? So, marmots aren't necessarily the most important thing to our ecosystem, but they're mostly endangered because of their habitat loss. Because of construction and humans building stuff. Yeah. So if the marmot is saved, other animals will be too that live in the same place as the marmot. So it's a broader sort of habitat restoration protection type of thing. Yeah, it's like the marmot's like the poster boy for for where all the other animals live. You know what? This reminds me of the spotted owl in Washington State down in the United States. The whole environmental movement started up around the spotted owl. They said, save the spotted owl, stop cutting down the forest and their old growth forest because the spotted owl is going to be eliminated. And they were successful. It was the first successful environmental action taken against a large corporation, forestry. And they saved the spotted owl. So maybe the marmot is Canada's spotted owl. Yeah, I think so. 
They're herbivores, so they mostly eat plants and sometimes bugs, so they are definitely prey. Are they tasty? No, I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah, go go eat the endangered marmot. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yum, yum. I'll go to jail. Yeah, you will. <laughs> Thanks, Lily. Time for the bucket list. Lily pointed out that protecting endangered animals has a lot to do with protecting their habitat. Well, you know what? There's a handful of old-growth forests at the southern end of Vancouver Island that have been protected. Unfortunately, the ones that haven't been protected are still being subjected to forestry, you know, chainsaws. Here's a bucket list destination for you. The first one I want to talk to you about is Golden Stream Provincial Park. Gold Stream Provincial Park is located just outside Victoria, the capital of British Columbia. Here's more about why you need to add this provincial park to your bucket list. Starting from Victoria, on the south end of Vancouver Island, head north on Highway 19 to Goldstream Provincial Park, just outside of the city. Walking trails in this protected area lead into an ancient world of 600-year-old Douglas firs and western red cedars as well as numerous other species including western yew and hemlock, red alder, big-leaf maple, black cottonwood, and arbutus, which is exclusively found in southwest coast of B.C. Waterfalls, creeks, wildflowers, and hiking trails make this a popular destination and an easy escape from the provincial capital into a wild wonderland. Another ancient forest worth exploring on Vancouver Island is called Castle Grove. Here's some information about Castle Grove. For the faint of heart, a twisting three-hour drive from Port Renfrew will lead you to Walbrand Valley, home to Castle Grove, also known as Heaven on Earth. A utopia of majestic forest land, this area offers natural swimming pools, the Seven Steps to Heaven Waterfall, interesting rock formations, and is home to various species of birds and wildlife. It's also home to the grandest growth of ancient cedars anywhere, including the legendary Castle Giant, measuring 5 meters at the base and an estimated 1,200 years old. You know, I had the pleasure of visiting this park and uh, walking between the trees. I mean, when you walk around these trees, you're actually making huge detours around these massive trees that are up to five meters in diameter and over trees because when they fall down, yeah, when they pass away, when these giants pass away and fall over, they don't haul them out. They don't clear the path. They leave them there for wildlife, for habitat put the nutrients back into the ground. I mean, these are huge carbon sinks and nutrient storage vessels. These trees, they're massive. It's got to go back into the ground to feed the other trees, to feed the next generation of trees. And while it's doing so, while it's rotting into the ground, it creates all sorts of great habitat, great hideaways for animals, yeah, like marmots. These trees are so huge, you know, when you try to wrap your arms around one. And you know a tree, the base of a tree is circular, right? But you walk up to one of these trees, you put your arms out as far as you can from one side to the other, you touch the tree. It's like you're grabbing, you're trying to grab a wooden, bumpy wall. There's no sense given to you in your hands, in your arms, in your body, that this is a tree that's in the, that's round. It just feels flat. Here's another old growth forest in the area. It's at the headwaters of Fairy Creek. This one's got some yellow cedars. They're in danger of being cut down. These are trees that are up to 2,000 years old. Let's hear more about Fairy Creek. Protesters have spent nearly a week blockading a logging road near Port Renfrew in an effort to defend what they say is the last unlogged watershed on southern Vancouver Island, outside of protected parks. Enough is enough, said Saul Arbus, a spokesperson for the Friends of Carmona Walbran, a group with a history of fighting logging in the region. Arbus and other protesters want the provincial government to stop Teal Jones, a Surrey-based logging company, from building a road into the Ferry Creek watershed, home to numerous old-growth yellow cedars, 
including one nearly three meters in diameter, the ninth widest known yellow cedar in the province. Yellow cedars are the oldest living organisms in the country. These trees are the last of the ancient giants. Clear-cutting Fairy Cree could wreak havoc on the local environment, threatening species diversity and exacerbating flooding in the San Juan River Basin. The really sad part is that these old-growth trees aren't being harvested for their beautiful wood, you know, to make gorgeous log homes or beautiful furniture. No, no. They're being used to make diapers. Yeah, that's right. Turns out the pulp that these trees are turned into make for great absorbent material. You know, in the big picture, who should win out on that one? Marmots or diapers? I think the answer is pretty clear. You know, not all forests are viewed for their wood harvesting potential. Here's a conversation I had with Dave Brown on his show, Now with Dave Brown, heard every weekday morning at 9 a.m. on AMI-tv. You may see forests as a place to walk, hike, enjoy nature, but more and more cities are planting, quote, food forests, not just for strolling through, but for growing fruits and vegetables. At the same time, other municipalities have rules that force property owners to maintain a traditional green lawn, rules that prevent people from growing pollinator-friendly flowers and vegetation, more supportive of bees, butterflies, and other wildlife. So before we start talking about similarities and differences, let's define these one at a time. What is a food forest? Food forest. Well, you know, think of Cowichan Valley, Duncan, British Columbia, right? They've developed one. It's got everything at all levels. Right at the ground, you got your herbs, you know, your rosemary, your savory. You got your vegetables, asparagus. Then you come up a little higher to your bush level. You got salmon berries and grapes growing. Reach up a little higher, you know, not to the top of those huge rainforest tree canopies, but more your fruit trees, you know, your plums, your figs, plums and apples and peaches mm. and things like that. It's all right there, right? It's just beautifully set up in the forest. And uh, you just walk in there and, and harvest away. It's It's been happening for thousands of years. Like, we haven't invented this. First Nations people started doing this thousands of years ago. Instead of carrying food with them when they were on their trails or portages, they planted uh, berries and bushes and nut trees along those trails and portages. And they knew when those trees and bushes were in, in uh, you know, ready to be harvested. And that's when they would do their, their hiking and their portaging because then they could just eat along the way. Now, see, this is smart. Don't, you don't need to pack food. Food's going to be available for you along the way. This is, this is, really, this is really good, have forward-thinking planning. I like that. Uh, now, Lawrence, what about a pollinator-friendly yard? What, what is that? What does that consist of? You know, we've heard stories about people who have let their um, lawns go uncut and then they've planted those wildflower seed packets where they get uh, all sorts of long grasses and wildflowers and uh, milkweed even. And they say, well, you know, we're doing this because there's problems with the pollinators, right? And we've all heard about problems with honeybees. We've all heard about the butterfly count going down. People want to do something about that. And they say, I've got this green grass that's really serving no purpose in front of my house. We never go out there. The kids never play there. It's just a status symbol for all intents and purposes. Let's, you know, get rid of the lawn. Let's put something in there that's going to benefit nature. It's, it's a little controversial, right? I mean, in West Quebec, there's a, there's a couple that, that have done this and, and the municipality is coming after them. <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> something in the Ottawa area involving a bylaw. Never once could I imagine something like that. Oh, yeah, exactly. Uh, so, Lawrence, when we're talking about similarities and differences beyond maybe just the difference between a public and a private space. What, what are some of the outcome uh, differences and similarities between these two ideas or uh, types of landscape? 
Well, some people might think it's messing with nature. I mean, you have a forest that's taken thousands of years to establish a balance. You know, everything happens in nature for a reason. We go in there, we throw a bunch of seeds around, we transplant some trees. You know, voila, we've upset the balance of nature and we've created disharmony in the forest. Forests are always changing. They're always evolving. You know, we have to be careful that we don't involve, put pests or, or, or viruses or diseases in there when we bring these seeds and plants in. That's mm. super important. And then at the same time, you know, we, we have these lawns that are just status symbols. And, you know, we think, well, I've got this huge lawn. I've got this half acre estate lot or a, a one acre estate lot. I got my riding mower. I'm pesticides, no dandelions, right? No dandelions mm. allowed. It's, it's literally, David, it's nothing but a desert, a green desert where nothing can live, right? So, I mean, we've got to establish some sort of balance there. We've got to figure this out. First Nations people, they've been doing it for thousands of years. They've been planting in the forest. We, we've been able to do it. I mean, we have farms situated alongside forests. We can, we can do this properly. We have organics that we're learning about more and more. And we just have to drop the idea that, you know, forests and lawns are, are just landscape features and, and they have to look a certain way. Yeah, let, let's jump a little bit deeper into that idea because I, it's obviously not necessarily a brand new idea, the idea of the perfect manicured lawn, but it's not exactly a, a super old idea either. Where do you think the balance is going to come into place? Where do you think uh, we might be able to get municipalities or cities or towns to understand that a little bit of revamping of personal green space could have a massive, massive impact on 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 local on the local environment? I think first of all, you know, lawnmowers have sort of fallen out of favor, right? The gas engines and all that gas equipment and 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 cutting and pesticides and her spraying herbicides. I mean, they're being outlawed more and more by municipalities, and people are getting used to the idea that you know they're giving up their golf course lawn. And, uh, you know, when they bought into that suburban type of, um, you know, sales pitch, where you're going to have the perfect lawn, the perfect house, you know, the two cars, one minivan, one SUV in the driveway, you know, 2.5 children, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's a cultural thing that we have to, we have to change, right? We have to change. And I think the millennials and environmentalists are teaching us that, you know, we have to live more harmoniously with nature instead of trying to beat it down or bend it to our will. It's mm. it's it's about it's about harmony now, and it's less about conquering and 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 controlling. Lawrence, I did like what you mentioned about at least some of the concerns in regards to a food forest being we have to make sure we're very careful about what we're importing into these places and spaces to make sure we're not upsetting the balance too, too much. But sometimes yeah. when you hear those arguments, do you sometimes think people are making them in bad faith? And I'll give you an example. I, I've got a friend who is like vehemently anti-vegan and he'll spend time yelling at vegans about how, well, to make avocados, you have to move bees from one space to another. And isn't that just as bad as killing a cow and sometimes do we have to remember that like a semantical argument is not always a good faith argument you think of almond milk there's another one right i mean how many almonds do you have to crush to make a, a, a one liter carton of almond milk and they grow most of these almonds in california in the desert you know where they have almost no water left anymore and and, mm. and you know the amount of, i think it's one and a half liters of water per almond per almond right so so i mean they yeah it, just because it's not uh walking around on four legs doesn't mean it's uh it's sustainable we i think we have to look at things more 
you know, scientifically and less subjectively and, and use the science to guide us. Where's our protein coming from? You know, what's, what's doable, what works, what doesn't work, what's climate appropriate, you know, what's, uh, what's an invasive species, what's going to spread, what's going to create havoc, you know, and I say that, David, and then I think about, you know, all the scientific advice that we've received over the decades, you know, since science became popular and turned out to be wrong. So, <laughs> all this talk about old growth forests and hiking through forests has got me thinking about my collection of canes and sticks that I've amassed over the years. I've lost a bunch, you know, I've broken them, I've caught them on fire, I've lost many underneath docks and in the bottoms of rivers, off canoes and boats. White canes sink like rocks, there's no doubt about that. But here's, uh, here's my favorite selection that I always carry with me in my pickup truck. Let's talk canes or sticks. You know, some people call them canes, some call them sticks. I use sticks, even though the technical term, I guess, is a, a white cane or an ID stick. Because when you're blind and you pull one of these white ones out, you know, with the golf handle and, you know, the tip, and you start swinging it back and forth in front of you, tap, 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 it's, it's the signal that you're blind. I mean, everyone knows that signal. So why would I have a white cane and a guide dog? That's a good question. There's a lot of times where you want to have that extra sensory thing going on. You just want to get out, do something quick, you know, putting the dog in the harness, maybe uh, just to go quicker with the stick. So I keep one of these around. People see me getting out of the truck, not the driver's door, and they know I'm blind right away, right? So that's, that's good and handy. But if I'm going out for a nice time and I want to look good, I'm dressed up a little bit, I got this custom one made by Ambutech. Nice wooden handle, a little bit of white here at the top. Looks like a white cane when I'm standing around. And when I'm not and walking around, it's graphite, nice flashy blue, looks really classy. But that's all show, right? What about gold? So when I'm on to the dock, I take this floaty one here. It's not a white cane. You know, I've tried to put a little bit of white tape on there. It's getting a little old. But what it does, it's got a rubber tip so I can walk and follow the edge of the dock. So I always know where the edge of the dock is because I don't want to fall in. When I'm launching the boat, it's got the rubber tip there, so I can always push on the boat as I'm pulling on the rope to make sure it's coming up to the dock, nice and parallel. Now coming in sideways, I'm gonna chip my uh, fiberglass paint job. And when I drop it off the boat or off the canoe or into the water, it rolls off the dock, it floats. Super nice, super handy. Haven't lost it yet. I've lost lots of white canes down there. Now here's something. I got this at the Zion Canyon. It's a wooden stick, your traditional wooden walking staff. Now, why do I want that? I like it. I just like the way it sounds. You know, is that wood? Is that stone down there? Is that wood? Is that soft moss? You know, do I want to poke it a little bit? If I fall down, and it's got a bit of a bend, but it's not going to snap and it's not going to bend permanently. It's going to bounce back. It's got a nice feel to it. When I'm holding it and hiking, I can push myself, pull myself a little bit, you know, keep my balance with it, even when I'm holding the guide dog. When I'm coming down a steep hill and I have to let go of the harness though, and I'm following someone, I can give them the end of that stick, they can hold it with their hand, they're walking with this stick in one hand, I'm holding with my hand, I can feel them going down, I can feel them turning left and right, I can feel them stepping over things, so they don't have to say going down, stepping over, you know, turning left, turning right, we can still talk, we can still enjoy the peace and quiet, all the information is being transmitted from their hand through this stick to my hand. Lily sure schooled us well on marmots. 
you know, and not to be confused with the French word marmot, which is uh, French for groundhog. We're not talking groundhogs here. Groundhogs are not in danger. There's plenty of those guys around. And we're not talking about uh, gophers either. I've had a pleasure of meeting some gophers firsthand in North Dakota. Friendly little fellas. We're talking marmots. Beautiful little things. Why should we care? Well, we learned from Lily that these could be the spotted owls of Canada. You know, they could be the reason why we want to protect our ancient old growth forests in uh, British Columbia. Very cool. This linkage between endangered animals and old growth forests made me think that we should put that on our bucket list. You know, like Gold Creek Provincial Park just outside Victoria. That sounds pretty easy to get to. It's accessible by the sounds of it. And it's got a, quite a range of old growth trees there to explore and, and things to see. And if you want to go to some of these other old growth forests that are a little bit further afield, well, you know, get someone to drive you then. It's going to be an adventure for sure. My discussion with Dave Brown about food forests and pollinator-friendly lawns, you know, gives me hope. And I hope it gives you guys hope, too, that we're not all about viewing forests for their wood potential, their pulp potential, for diaper-making potential. There is people out there thinking about forests in other ways as just, you know, a nature walk. There are places of foraging. First Nations people have been doing that for centuries. They've been planting in forests for centuries. It's been their own gardens. We don't even notice it, you know, because it's all grown up now. But they did it for centuries and centuries. They managed their forests. They managed their meadows. They planted there their berries, their fruit trees, and other food-bearing and medicine-bearing plants and trees. We've got a lot to learn from them about living in harmony with nature. And it can feed us and we can take care of it. It can be a symbiotic relationship. It can be sustainable. In my outdoor tips and tech talk, I talked about the canes and sticks I own. I might have been a bit irreverent about white canes. Maybe it's because I never actually owned one for the first 20 years I, I was registered blind. I actually had a guide dog for 10 years before I finally got a white cane. Not that I have anything against white canes. I mean, you know, going out in public with a white cane is a sure a good way to let people know that you have a visual disability and that you're not just being one of these people that don't practice social distancing well. It also got me thinking, though, about a time I spent back in 1989 up in Taktiakta with a blind Inuit man staying at his home. I was up in the, the Northwest Territories doing research for a summer on community response to Native and Inuit people with disabilities. You know, what did people with disabilities do? Did they have to leave their communities and head south to cities to get rehabilitation services, to access technologies, to go to school and all of that? Or could they stay in their communities? Well, I spent some time with Sam in his home in Taktiaktak. Now, picture Taktiaktak. It's an Inuit community right on the Arctic coastline. It's just built on gravel, just a sprinkling of houses situated on gravel. There's no roads to speak of. And after three days, I said to Sam, I said, Sam, what's around here? And he goes, well, there's a Hudson's Bay store. And I said, well, let's go check it out. And he goes, okay. I didn't bring my guide dog because they told me not to bring my guide dog to Taktiaktak because there's, you know, sled dogs running around and they would fight with my guide dog. So I left him back in, uh, in Inuvik where I was based. So I said, Sam, how do you get around out here? And he goes, well, I, I said, do you have a white cane? He goes, no, no, there's no good around here with the deep snow. He, he uses a, a hockey stick handle just with the blade cut off. 
So we got our parkas on and we got all dressed up and we headed out of his house and I'm holding his arm and he's holding his hockey stick and we're chatting and talking and walking along and walking along and it's just gravel and because uh, they don't get a lot of snow up in the Arctic, surprisingly. It's considered a desert climate, the Arctic. They really don't get a lot of precipitation. So we're just crunching along in the gravel and walking and talking and then we hear this vehicle roll up beside us and this man says, Sam, where are you going? And Sam says, oh, me and my blind friend here, we're just heading for the Hudson's Bay store. And the man says, Sam, you're heading out of town. You better get into the van. Hockey sticks or white canes. We need something a little bit better than that if you're going to go live in these places. And there are things better than that. Always being invented, always being innovative. We'll talk more about that on future episodes of Outdoor Tips and Tech for sure. Keep listening to Outdoors with me, Lawrence Gunther. And you'll get more tips on how to get around in the forest, how to get around on water, how to get around off the sidewalk using different technologies, different knowledge, local knowledge, Inuit knowledge. You know, there are ways to do this safely. There are ways to do this enjoyably, to experience nature, to connect with nature. We can get off the sidewalk. Hey, join me back on Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther next week. In the meantime, send me an email with suggestions, your feedback, your questions at feedback at ami.ca or on Twitter at AMIAudio. That's feedback at ami.ca is email or twitter at ami audio thanks for listening this was an ami podcast for more accessible media visit ami.ca Hello, I'm Sean Priest. Join me monthly for Sean of the Shed, where I introduce you to all the technology that can be so useful to us as blind or partially sighted people. Find Sean of the Shed wherever you find all your podcasts.